Romans chapter 9, verses 30 through 33. Romans 9, starting in verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were by, based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the sweetness of your word. Lord, that uh, it gives us truth about who you are. Lord, who we are. And we thank you that you made a way so long ago, Lord, through Christ. That we're gathered here today under the banner of Jesus, under the gospel, Lord, and we praise you for that. And I ask now that you would prepare our hearts, God, that we would receive from you, Lord, uh, not from me, Lord, there's nothing I can give. So I pray that you'd fill me afresh with your spirit and that you would use this time to glorify your name. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have to ask this question. How many of you have seen the new Top Gun movie? Yeah, baby, I loved it. I loved it. I have to be honest, I watched the original one this week, and I was really disappointed. The new one, I think, is a lot better, a lot better. Uh, you say, well, that's kind of a weird way to open up a sermon, Dan. Um, well, because it has to do with Tom Cruise. I don't know if you know this, but Tom Cruise in 1986, his uh, wife at that time convinced him to convert to Scientology. And so Tom has been a believer for 36 years in Scientology. And uh, what they believe, there's a whole bunch of beliefs that uh, part of it is that man is basically good and that uh, you, you have lived numerous lives and even uh, extraterrestrial lives and that uh, you really, in essence, are your own savior. They believe in a, a deity, but... Uh, they don't talk a whole lot about that. As a matter of fact, uh, people in Scientology consider Tom to be a deity because of all the work that he has done to help the church and the world in general. So that's kind of the belief there. But what you find is this. If you go and you look back throughout the whole world, history of the world, you look at every culture, you look at the cults, whatever it might be, they had their answer to how do you receive eternal life? How do you spend eternity in heaven? Is almost always based on works. You need to be moral. You need to be good to people. You can't hurt others. Or there's certain religious practices that you have to do. You have to pray this many times a day or pray in this direction or pray to this uh, little idol, whatever it might be, or you need to just do good works. Your good works need to outweigh your bad. And the thing about it is, is that people who are involved in, in these types of things, they're very sincere. 
They're very religious people, very moral people many, many times. Uh, But the problem is that they're sincerely wrong. They're sincerely wrong because salvation is only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. That's it. People say, well, Christians, you're sure arrogant about that. No, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. That's what it says. There's no other way. And that's why Jesus, as we'll see today, is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to some and to others. He's their way of salvation, their foundation, their cornerstone. That's who we have in Christ. Well, Romans chapter 9, Paul is answering a question. Uh, He realized that the Jewish people were probably asking this. Well, if God made a promise that he would uh, save his chosen people, Israel, then why have so many Jewish people rejected Christ as their Messiah, as their Savior? And why have so many Gentiles accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior? This doesn't make sense. If God made a promise to his people that he would save them, well, then it doesn't appear that he's doing that. And so Romans chapter 9 is Paul responding to that question. He's saying, well, why haven't a lot of them responded? He talked about divine election. He talked about uh, all, these other, all these things in Romans chapter 9 that I want to encourage you to read. But what he's saying is this, is that the Jewish people were viewing this wrongly. They thought that God's chosen people were just the Jewish people. And so all these Jewish people were not coming to Christ. So why wasn't God's promise fulfilled? What's, what's wrong? And if God was not fulfilling his promise to Israel, then how can we hope he would fulfill his promises to us today, which in Romans 8, 28, all things will work for the good for those who believe and are called according to his purposes. We couldn't believe that because God couldn't deliver on Israel, so how can he deliver to us? And Paul's saying, you know what? Because there's Israel and then there's true Israel, spiritual Israel. And what we see is that God had said he would save some. didn't say he was going to save all of Israel. As a matter of fact, what he was going to do is show them that God's promise did not fail, that he would save his chosen people. But for the Jewish people, they need to understand the chosen people aren't just you guys. They're Gentiles that are a part of that chosen people of God. And that's why we can be sure that God did not fail in his promises, but rather he has fulfilled them. We see that the Gentiles who were not included, did not receive, I should say, the covenant promises that God made to the Jews, yet God, in his mercy, included Gentiles, like you and I, he included us in the Abrahamic promises. That's what God did. And He foretold this. See, it was right in front of their eyes, and they didn't see it. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, let me explain this to you. It was already there. Scripture had foretold of it. And then he's saying, and not only did Scripture foretell of it, it was prophesied, but then history confirmed this truth, that God had done this. The majority of Romans chapter 9 Verses 6 through 33 are Old Testament quotes. Paul's laying down evidence for the Jewish people to see that God is fulfilling his word. 
And today is another example of Paul really looking into uh, the history of the Jewish people and saying, listen, God foretold of these things. Take a look at Romans chapter 9, 24 through 26. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where, I was said, where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. I want to encourage you to go read the book of Hosea. It's a wonderful story. It's about Hosea, and God had commanded Hosea to marry a prostitute. Go marry her. A harlot is the term that the Word of God uses. And it was supposed to be an illustration. That whole book is an illustration of how God, God's faithful love was there for an unfaithful nation. God said, I want you to go marry this person and have children by this person. And what Paul is doing is he's saying, listen, this whole story about uh, uh, Hosea and Gomer is really a picture of the Gentiles. Because look at what he says. He says, uh, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed it says in Hosea. So he's tying them two together. The salvation of the Gentiles is pictured in the book of Hosea as well. And I would encourage you to go there, as I said, because what we find is that God works things. He calls this uh, prophet to marry this harlot, and then they have children by her, and then she leaves. She goes back into her harlotry. And then what happens is is that God calls Hosea to go and bid on her because she was being sold in a slave market and get her back as your wife. And that was to be a picture of God's love for us, a picture of God coming after us, chasing us, his faithfulness, even in the midst of our unfaithfulness. And in that book of Hosea, you'll find that in chapter 1, it's really a message of doom. He's talking about, okay, I want you to name your first child this, and I want you to name your second child this, and I want you to name your third child this. And they were not my people. The second child was named not my people, and the third child was named meant no mercy, no compassion. And then in the next chapter, what we see is this, is we see this this picture of of hope. Because now God says, and now I want to change their names. From the people where it says that, not my people, now you change this child's name to my people. And this child's name who is uh, no compassion, no mercy, I want you to change that child's name to compassion and mercy. What happened is that the Israelites had become so entwined in the Gentile uh, world that they became lost in their own faith. That's their world. They would be called the lost tribes of Israel. And yet God loved them. God loved them. And he made a promise that he was going to draw them to himself. And what we see here is that God made a promise to these people And God declared for this moment that the Israelites were were basically Gentiles. Okay, he said, they're like Gentiles. And then he says, you know what, but I'm calling my people back to myself. And so then what happens is he says, no, okay, now I'm calling you Israelites. And Paul is taking those and he's putting them together and he's saying, this is a picture 
of God prophesying that Gentiles would be a part of the chosen people that God uh, was going to call his own. It wasn't just the Jews. So Hosea was this prophecy. It was uh, a picture of the Gentiles and how they would come to believe in Christ as Savior. That's what Paul is saying here. There's a parallel here. And then he goes on, and he's, now he quotes Isaiah. And he says, in Isaiah is the prophecy that the Jews would not believe. Take a look at God's word again. Now we're just going to the next couple of verses. Romans 9, 27 through 29. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. So he's talking about Hosea concerning the Gentiles, and now he's talking about Isaiah concerning Israel, the Jews. So he's, he's dealing with both groups of people. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. In Isaiah 8.14, it says this, He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, the northern and the southern kingdoms. And in Isaiah 28, 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion. Nick, did you know that that was going to be quoted today? See how God works. I'm sitting there singing this song, and I thought, I wonder if Nick read ahead and knew that we were going to talk about Zion. Because that was in the song we sang. You know who gets the glory for that? The Holy Spirit, the Lord. Because we don't do that. We don't organize those things. God does. Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. What we see is that God had said to Israel uh, through Isaiah that there was going to be divine discipline because of their unfaithfulness. You know, God disciplines his children. God disciplines the ones he loves. And he, is, he basically prophesied through Isaiah, that the, Na- the Babylonians were going to take them into captivity. And that's what that prophecy was about. They would take them into captivity. And because of that, because of all the difficult things through the conquering and then other things, their numbers would be reduced way down. But God had said that he made a promise that his divine would preserve a remnant That's what the word is used up there. Uh, Second line, only a remnant of them will be saved. You see, that's what we see throughout history, that no matter what happened, God had a remnant. God had a pocket of believers that were always there, worshiping God, trusting in him. And he's saying, you know what? That's what God promised. God promised he would have a people, a chosen people, and that there would always be a group of people that were chosen. And they would continue to pursue God and for his glory. We see that God preserved them. He preserved a remnant. And what it's saying here is that if God basically wasn't merciful, if God wasn't faithful, if God was not going to fulfill his promises to Israel, fulfill his promises that he made to Abraham, then he should have, we deserved it, He should have wiped us all out, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. He should have done that, but he didn't. 
because of who God is, his mercy. Remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, the question about, well, God isn't fair if he chooses, and and God never responded, or or Paul never responded to that question. And remember, all scripture is is God-breathed. And so what happened is, is that he said, instead of answering, well, God's unjust if he does this, he said, well, no, wait, it's not about justice, it's about mercy. I will have mercy on who I will have mercy on. And so he comes back to that here, mercy again. He says, you know, God was merciful because this nation of Israel was unfaithful. And they would, he would have been just to wipe them out, but he made a promise. And so he had this remnant within them. And so he was fulfilling his word, not because he was going to save all the Jewish people, but because he had a remnant, he had a chosen people. And it wasn't just among the Israelites, it was also among the Gentiles. And so this, he's, he's answering that question that this chapter started with, that chapter 9 started with. He's saying, because you've got to look at it bigger than that. It's not just the Jewish people. It also includes Gentiles. And so then Paul is, is bringing this other question to them. And it seems like, from a Jewish perspective, remember Paul is writing from that, and he's speaking to many Jewish converts, but also Gentiles. You know, it seems like, it seems like the Gentiles attained the righteousness that God required without seeking it. Without seeking it. They received the righteousness that God would require, and this religious nation of Israel strived but failed to attain it. How could that be? Take a look at God's word again. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. So they didn't work yet. It wasn't about works. What? How come? Doesn't that make you mad when somebody is just naturally... Boy, they don't even have to work at something. They can do it. And you work so hard. You're trying to concentrate on something to get that job done. And they just come over and they go, oh, yeah, you just boom, 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 boom. And you go, you didn't even work at it. It frustrates us. And I can see the frustration here, the frustration for the Jews. Wait a minute. The Gentiles didn't even work at this thing. And they attained it? And then it says in here, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? How could that happen? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Then in Isaiah 46, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. What was happening here? You see, the Gentiles did not have the law of Moses to guide them. They didn't have that. Uh, Yet they attained a righteousness in a sense of not seeking it through the law and trying to earn righteousness, but they received it by faith. So in that sense, they weren't really pursuing it the way that the Jews were. They were doing it through the law, through law-keeping. And yet... The Gentiles attained the righteousness that was necessary, and it appeared that they did it without even striving for it from a Jewish mindset. And they received that righteousness by faith. 
Yet Israel was pursuing this righteousness, was pursuing it through law-keeping, through their religious works. Oh, you got to can't do this on Sunday and you can't do this and you got to eat this and boy, don't you heal on Sunday. Don't you pull your cow out of the ditch on Sunday. Don't do any of these things. And we, you got to eat this and you got to tithe this much and all that stuff. And they thought that all those things were making them right with God. That they would have a righteousness that was their own. That they would have fulfilled the law. They would, they would live according to the law. And that's why they failed to attain the righteousness that they needed. They failed it terribly. And the reason is because of this. Justification, just as if we had not sinned, I usually say, but that's what God grants us salvation, draws us to himself. Being saved is by faith in Christ alone. That's it. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. And if it's not that, and you're depending on anything else, then what happens automatically is this. Jesus is the stumbling stone. Jesus is the stumbling stone because he's the one who died on the cross. He is the one who paid that price that we owed. And so if we're trying to attain a righteousness that God would welcome us into heaven by our deeds, then what happens is, the scripture is saying right here, then Jesus is your stumbling stone. Because it's about Jesus, it's not about you. You cannot attain a righteousness that is acceptable to God by your own works, by your own religious activity, by your own moral life. You can't do that. And if you try, then, the very, then Jesus is the one who's going to cause you to stumble because it, it's not, that's not what... God has said is where you gain your righteousness. That's not, it, it's done through Christ and Christ alone. And you see, what was happening was this. The Jews realized you got to be saved the same way the Gentiles were. And that is a humbling thing for a Jewish person. That's an offensive thing to a Jewish person. You remember that as we see in Scripture so many times, that, that if you knew that Gentiles were in a certain area, even Samaritans, you'd walk around that area. You wouldn't even go through it because you would be unclean. And the idea, the idea that God would say, the way that you are made right with me is the same way that the Gentiles are, through faith, not through law-keeping. And that was so offensive to a Jewish person. We don't understand how offensive it was. That's why when we look at this, we see how, how Christ is going to be the uh, rock of offense. Because he's the one. He is the one who came and he said, I'm the fulfillment of the law. He comes and he says, listen, uh, this is the only way to heaven. It's through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that was offensive to a Jewish person. Are you telling me my nationality isn't about what it's about? Are you telling me that me following the law is not what it's about? That's offensive to me. And these vile Gentiles are getting into heaven because they believe in Christ alone? That is offensive to me. You see how Christ became the rock of offense? He, didn't, he wasn't what they expected. They were expecting a king to come, a conquering king, and dethrone the Roman Empire. And Christ comes as a humble servant instead. He didn't fit their narrative. 
is what happened. And so they weren't going to accept him. They were going to reject him. He became the stumbling stone of the Israelites, the rock of offense. That's what Scripture's saying here. Saying you rejected Christ. And the gospel inherently offends because it confronts our sinful pride. That's what it does. The gospel offends people because it says, you know what, you're a sinner. Oh, wait a minute, Dan. It says, you know what, you like sin. Oh, you don't know me. I'm a real moral person. I'm really very religious. This is offensive for you to say that. You look at Romans and all these chapters, 1 through 8, it's offensive, some of the stuff in there, if you read it from the perspective of somebody who's religious and lost. It's really offensive stuff. But as believers, it's, it's, it's life for us. And so what happens is, is that we see that the gospel confronts our pride. It calls us what we are, sinners in desperate need of help. And we can't get it ourselves. And boy, in America, we don't like to hear that message, do we? We don't like to hear that. What happens is this. We have a tendency to underestimate our own sin. That's where it starts. You know, you don't sin anymore. I made a mistake. We don't lie anymore. I misspoke. No, you lied. You see, we like to dumb down our sin, kind of clean it up a little bit, because then it's not quite so offensive. You know, we want to call abortion a woman's right instead of just calling it you killing a child. You're killing your own child. We don't want to be offensive. And praise God for what he did this last week. But we, we like to sanitize our sin, change the name of it, make it sound a little bit more acceptable. And then what we do is we also underestimate the cost of salvation. Yeah, Jesus saved me. I haven't been that bad of a person. We forget that the the costliest sacrifice ever in all eternity was Christ dying on the cross for your sin and mine. Because we were so desperate and we needed him to do that. And we underestimate the cost of salvation. We don't realize what happened there and the high cost of it. And we trust our own good works, our religious activity to satisfy God's demand for righteousness so that we might spend eternity in heaven with him. And we're pretty good. We're not bad. The problem is this. God doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't grade on a curve. It's pass or fail. That's it. And in order to pass, you have to be 100% righteous. That means that you cannot sin once, ever, in your entire life in thought, word, or deed, or you're disqualified. Not one lie, not one evil thought about someone. You do it just once through your entire life, and you're disqualified. You're not 100% perfectly righteous. And you see the desperate place we're in? Because that's God's minimum requirement, and we can't meet that. But so many people try in their own strength. That's what the Jewish people were doing. And what happened is this, is they didn't realize that there was only one ever in the history of the world that was perfectly righteous, only one, and his name is Jesus Christ. He was without sin. That's what the word of God says. He never sinned once. 
His perfect righteousness meets the Father's requirements to spend eternity in heaven. And so what we see is this, that that it's only through Christ, by receiving the gift of salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, where Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. What that means is, is that God considers it as if it were ours. And our sin is imputed to Christ as if our sin was Christ, so he was punished for it. So what happens then is God's minimum requirement of 100% righteousness is met not by us, but by Jesus. And that's why Christ is the only way. Because he meets the righteous requirements that God has in order to spend eternity in heaven with him. And that's why any other way, any other way, results in stumbling over Jesus. There's a lot, of, a lot of religions that believe in Jesus. But they still base salvation on works. My good works outweigh my bad, or if I do this or I do that. And the problem is, they're disqualified already. But any other belief, any other way that you think you're going to get right with God, then Jesus becomes your stumbling stone because he's the evidence this is what was required. And you didn't accept that. And so you stumble over Christ. And the judgment comes and condemnation comes for all eternity. And that's the end. You know, fallen human nature, our pride, and every other religion in the world teach the wrong way to God. They teach the wrong way to God. And usually it's some sort of combination of works or religious activity or morality but it's wrong they're sincere but they're sincerely wrong take a look at God's word starting in chapter 10 look at what God's doing in his word chapter 10 1 through 4 and then 14 through 15 brothers my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. That is the key right there. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. It goes on in 14, how will they call on him? in whom they have not believed. I'm going to stop right there. You see, what it's showing here in in verses 1 through 4 and verse 4 is that faith in Christ as your Savior is the end of the quest for righteousness through religious activities and works. You can't fulfill the law Christ did. That's why he's the culmination of it. He did it for you. That's what it's saying here. And again, that's why I say... Jesus is either your stumbling stone, your rock of offense, or he's your savior. He's your foundation. He's your cornerstone. He's one or the other. He's not both. And that's why many very sincere, religious, moral people miss salvation because their zeal is not in accordance with knowledge of the truth of the gospel. Your friends that you have that may be very sincere about their faith, even if it's atheism, that's still a faith. 
your neighbors, your friends, your family, your coworkers. They sincerely believe, but they're sincerely wrong. And Paul realized this. Paul realized this. And I want to encourage us as I close today. Look at Paul's response to that. Look at Paul's response to that overwhelming truth that these people, and here, in this case, the Jewish people, their zeal is there, but it's wrong. They're sincerely wrong. Look at Paul's response. And I I pray it would be our response. He's looking at all the lost Jewish people, and it's overwhelming him. It's breaking his heart. Do the lost break your heart? Now, I want to go back and I want to remind you of something here. Paul believes in divine election. All right? God has chosen his people. But look what he does. Look what Paul does. He believes in that. But he also knew that God's sovereignty was compatible with man's responsibility. It wasn't one or the other. It was both. And so look what Paul's response is. Though he believes in divine election, that God has chosen his people, he realizes that God's sovereign plan includes prayer. It includes us sharing the gospel. That's what it does. He's saying, yeah, God is sovereign. He's calling his people. But you know what? I'm praying. I'm praying. These are lost people, and I don't know who's elected and who's not, and I'm praying for them, and I'm preaching the gospel to them. That's why I put in here 14. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? Remember, this is Paul writing it, who believes in God predestining people. And he's saying, but you gotta, you got to send a preacher to them. And how will they believe in him whom they have not never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? He's saying, guys, you may believe this truth about divine election, sovereignty of God. But you don't stop. They, they need to hear the gospel. You are the ones that need to go out there and share the gospel with them. I love that. And in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the only way. And so, my challenge is this for us, and this is how I will end. Election does not negate the need to pray for salvation of the lost. Are you praying for the lost people in your lives? Don't assume that the religious people in your life are saved. Don't assume that. That's the point Paul's making in this section of Scripture. You've got some really religious people that are very sincere that are lost. So pray. Pray for people. Continue to seek them. Bring them before God. Trust him to work. Because that's how God designed it. That's how God ordained it. That he was going to work through the prayers of his people and he was going to work through the gospel being shared. That's how God ordained it. And so we get to be a part of that. Like I said, it takes the pressure off of you when you're sharing. But we still are called to share. I have to tell you of a failure I had this week in this area. Um, My family's looking for a couple of cars. And I found one up in the cities that I thought, well, we'll drive up there. It looked like a pretty good deal. 
And so I felt the Holy Spirit laying in my heart, bring a Bible up there, Dan, and give it to this guy. And it was heavy on me for, you know, about half a day. I didn't bring a Bible up there. I went up there with my son Sam, and I had an opportunity to be an, an example to him. I didn't bring a Bible up there. I never told a guy about Christ. And I, I tore me apart because I knew what God was telling me to do, and I didn't do it. I was resisting that. You see, God uses us. He uses the preaching of his word. He uses us to pray. So I'm praying for Justin, and I ask you to pray for Justin. And what I realized this morning in the prayer room when I was praying for him was I felt like the Lord just said, Dan, I'll give you a second chance. Don't you have his address on your phone? I had to have it because I had to plug in my map, right? So I'm going to try to send this guy a Bible. You know, I'm going to send it, and then I'm going to send him an email and just, or text and just say, hey, I sent you a gift. Thank you for your time. So I'm going to follow up, but I just want you to say, I don't always respond the way I should, but I want all of us to understand this. There's a whole world of lost people all around us. They're really sincere about what they believe, but they're sincerely wrong. And God is calling us, like he did Paul, to pray for those around us, including the religious people. Pray for them that they might know the truth and the truth might set them free. And don't stop at praying. Paul didn't. He's saying, you know what? Pray for opportunity that you would share the gospel with them, that that God would prepare their hearts and that you would share the gospel with them. And that's my charge for us today. Jesus, Jesus is a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, or he is your way of salvation. And my call to us as a body of Christ is there's a lot of sincere people that are going to hell. Let us pray. Seek God for their salvation and then share the gospel. And I know, I know that God would call all of us to do that. Regardless of where we stand on the issue of predestination or not, we're all called to do that. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I ask you to... Do a work in our hearts, Lord. Um, there's so many good people around us, Lord. So many moral people. So many religious people that are sincerely wrong, God. And it's hard for us, Lord. I know my own fears come up and, and it's difficult for me to, to step forward and share at times. But I pray that you give us a holy boldness. God, would you burden our hearts right now for the lost? That it would overwhelm us. That we would pray. We would seek your face. And that you would give us opportunity to share the gospel and then give us the courage to share. And Lord, do this so that the lost might be found. Lord, that your name would be made much of. Do this for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' beautiful, glorious, powerful name. Amen.